0: Tennessee stud himself, all six feet nine, 275. Of Ron, Fl-
1: how you doing, brother? I'm doing great, man.
0: Nice man. To I'll well. tell you what, you found the fountain of youth, man, because you look amazing.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that. You but, do, you're uh, really pretty look good. great. You,
0: you know, I mean, for a guy that's pushing what, like, you're, you're like 105 now, 106, you're looking <laughs> good. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, you know, you're good. not that old. We know you're just a baby, um, Ron. Welcome to the show. We're going to talk about your. Uh, you, we got a lot to talk. Oh my God, so much to talk about. Where do we begin? Talk about your wrestling career, your managing, the owning a promotion, running a promotion. Now you're an author and a podcaster. Holy, is there anything you don't do?
1: Uh, well, there's a few things I don't do, but uh, uh that's I've because I don't, don't want to. I've not seen you sing and
0: dance yet.
1: <laughs> No, I'm not much of a dancer, that's for sure.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, we, uh, Mikey, why don't we give, uh, Mr. Fuller, uh, the, uh, the introduction, uh, that he deserves from, uh, from this crew here. Uh, let's, first of all, let's introduce everybody to Ron. Ron, I'm Angelo. We spoke, you know that. Right. Uh, gentlemen here, the, uh. The good-looking guy with the big old mutton chops—that is Dan, the man, the Happy Haberdasher. Okay. Dan, the man, Sebastiano. He's the smartest guy in the room. Hello. And of, of course, got over here the man who set everything up tonight, uh, Mike Messier. Hi, Ron. Yeah, Mike is a uh, an actor, writer, producer, director, filmmaker. Uh, he just actually won. Why don't you tell Ron about your the new award that you just won?
2: Well, uh, what it was, Ron, is that um, I made a very short film with my phone. And I had an editor do some work on it. And the piece won an award from what's called the Alternative Film Festival. It's called The Never Was. And it, uh, it actually has a, a slight wrestling tie-in because um, a friend of mine at the time was working on a documentary about Just Incredible. And um, I've known Justin a little bit, and, and some of the mistakes that Justin's made, that he's admitted to himself kind of inspired this piece that never was, which is really about someone who never achieved their full potential. And um, I find that a lot of people suffer through that. I think in your case, you, you would be the opposite of that. You, you and your brother you and your brother and your cousin uh, all exceeded tremendously in professional wrestling. But my little short uh, piece that never was was really kind of try to be an inspirational piece to those that haven't fulfilled their life's destiny yet, which I would put myself in that same category. So it's really an honor to have uh, the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller here tonight. I've been watching a lot of his uh, matches this past week. Very oh, exciting, yeah, Mike, you know. Um, yeah, very. Excited I gotta tell about you this. something,
0: right? He's driving me crazy today, Ron. He really driving me <laughs> crazy today. It was. Have you seen this one? Have you seen that one? So, oh, all right, Mikey, I'll I'll spend the next twelve hours watching Ron <laughs> Fuller. <laughs> right,
1: that sounds uh, like a so great, great concept play. that what you're talking about there, Mike. That that that, that sounds pretty amazing, man. Congratulations. He's
0: a pretty Appreciate he's that. a really talented guy, Ron. He really is. He really is a very talented guy. We're we're very we're happy and honored to have him as part of our team. Well, I uh, want to be here. I think it's fair to say, now let's just, let's let's go back a little bit in history here. Um, I think it's fair to say without the Fuller Welch clan, without, certainly without Roy Welch, without Roy Welch, there is no wrestling in Tennessee. In fact, I dare say there's probably no wrestling in the southern half of the United States without this legendary, iconic, Visionary before wrestling. What was there? What, what did Roy Welch do? How did this man make his his uh, his income? How did he earn his money?
1: Well, you know, he, he grew up. Uh, he, he's got Indian blood. My granddad was uh, had quite a bit of Indian blood. And uh, and he we, He lived out there in West Texas, uh, New Mexico area uh, from a very poor family. Uh, and they grew up poor. Uh, just one real quick story about my granddad to give you an idea of what kind of family he had. At 12 yes, years sir. old, 12 years old, they lived in the Northern Plains in New Mexico, and they had a few cows. And uh, when the winter came, they had to drive them off the plateau up there and get them down in the southern part of New Mexico to, uh, to get through the winter with them. And uh, so my granddad was 12 years old. He had a brother named Herb, It was a little younger. He had another brother named Jack. And uh, they with no shoes on their feet and their dad on a horse. uh, They took about a dozen cows south off the plateau. And uh, when they got down there, my uh, granddad uh, told me that uh, the day they got ready to leave, he said his dad woke him up and he said, look, come over here. I want to show you how to wire rabbits out out of a hole. And he took some barbed wire and wrapped it down in the hole, wrapped it in the rabbit's hair, jerked him out of the hole. And he said, uh, I want you to stay here, son, and be back in three months, follow the cows, and we'll come back and get you. And three Jesus. months from now, 12 years old, and he left him out there in the prairie with a dozen cows. He said, you got to follow them. He said, you go where they are, we'll find you in three months. And uh, they went back north and uh, they left him, left him down there for three months, 12 years old, so... Now, I got to tell you something, I'm a little older
0: than these guys, I heard that story previously, and when I heard it the first time, I thought, there's no way, this is like some southern tale, they embellished it, maybe Ron added a couple little details to it. And then I thought to myself, I, if, if he tells that story, I got to call bullshit because I thought it was all, <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I heard that, and this is the third time I've heard that story. And I got to and, and Ron almost verbatim. I can't believe they left this guy, this young kid, like 12, 13 years old, left him out there for three months. Actually, the story I heard was a little longer than three months.
1: It could have been. Three,
0: yeah, about three and a half months. They left him out
1: there.
3: That sounds so, like the uh, sounds like the backstory of a rancher-themed heel. Got abandoned by my family, and now yeah. I'm fighting back.
1: Yeah, well, his, you know, his his father was a pretty much a full-blooded Indian, and uh, and he was a he was a rustler. He made that's where he got his cows that they mar- they probably took south is he probably wrestled those cows and, uh, you know, they, so, uh, you know, he, he came up from rough, rough group of guys and, uh, yeah. you know, and then uh, started in professional wrestling. Uh, have you ever heard the, I'm sure you guys have heard of the original Dutchman tale. Yes, sir. I have the original, uh, from West Texas out there in the Amarillo area, worked in New Mexico. He taught my grandfather to wrestle, to shoot. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Roy, uh, he, and, he, and he broke Roy's wrist the first time they ever shot on purpose. And then mm-hmm. Roy, and he said, uh, in his uh, Dutch accent, he said, and then, I hope I never see you again. And Roy said, oh, no, I'll be back. I'll be back. And about six months later, he came back, and he broke his ribs the next time. So, you know, I mean, uh, you know, he, he really had a tough getting into the wrestling business. And uh, But, uh, you know, he really learned a whole lot. Uh, he worked as a carny on the ballet. Back yeah. in those days, that's where a lot of wrestlers got their start. And uh, obviously, he could shoot. And uh, he learned everything he learned from uh, Dutch Mantell so far as a shooter. And Dutch eventually sent him to territory, Columbus, Ohio, in the early 20s. You know, Ron, I,
0: I want to I pick up on that for, for just a second. Because we've heard stories uh, on the podcast before about um, you know guys working the carny circuit. Back in the way back in the day, but back in the twenties and thirties, especially uh, when they were traveling carnivals, you had the strong man. You had, of course, the wrestler who would very often the wrestler would work another person in the carnival. But the people didn't know it. It was like kind of a shill, you know, kind right. of a. Um, so yeah, you so you know where I'm going with this. Um, but once in a while. You had a guy step up that was a local townsperson, you know, the local strong guy or the the big, big bubba from from the from the area. And he wanted to show everybody just how strong he was. They tell me that the guys who worked the Kearney circuit were some of the best shooters in the world because they never knew what they were going to run up against yeah whether it whether it was somebody yeah from from town that just wanted to try you on and see you know what you got uh or sometimes even guys that worked with you in the carnival circuit if they had heat with you, they'd like to try you on too so let's can we talk a little bit about the early wrestling uh on the carny circuit sure absolutely so so tell me about like um we, you know, I I know that Roy Welch did a lot of that. Where was his primary
1: education in wrestling? Was it the Carnies? No, I think he got almost all his education from Dutch Mantell. Uh, okay, he told me that uh, he, when he got interested in wrestling, uh, he they had the they had some organized wrestling in Amarillo. And All Dutch Mantell was actually working some shows in uh, probably the 1910s to the 1920 era in uh, Amarillo area. And right. he went to a show and and uh, he, he got a chance to meet him. And he asked him, he said, would you train me? You know, and uh, Dutch didn't want to train him. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'll tell you a Dutch Mantell story that you probably never heard. Uh, this is pretty amazing story. Okay. Uh, this, in that same time frame the Dutch got Roy involved with the carnies because he taught him to shoot and he said your next step is to work in the carnival you're going to shoot with marks you know he said you'll learn a whole lot there and uh, and then he said Roy after about two years I, I asked him I said did you ever lose and he said no he said no I never <laughs> lost he goes uh you know, and he said, he said, sometimes there'd be two of us on the ballet. And he said, I was the smallest guy. I always got picked to, to shoot with. If a guy wanted to shoot, he picked me. And uh, so I said, Well, what happened if you lost? And he said, Well, hell, they'd fire you, boy. And I said, Well, <laughs> oh, just like that. And he said, Hell yeah. And I said, Why? And he said, They'd hire the son bitch and beat you. You know, exactly. <laughs> and, you, know, <laughs> you got your job, you know? So uh, I heard so. stories
0: like that. I've actually heard stories like that. Not that particular one, but I've I've heard those type of stories. It's very often the mark
1: would end up working for the carnival. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense if you could beat the wrestler. I mean, uh, why not hire the guy that could beat your man? Sure. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then Dutch, oh, let me, can I, this, this, this is a good story. I think you really enjoy this. Dutch comes after two years and he says to Roy, he says, I need you to go with me to Houston, Texas. He says, there's two promoters in Houston and there's a war going on. He says, so the two promoters are, their businesses is falling to pieces. And he says, they made a bet. And the bet was that you hire yourself the best shooter you can. And the other promoter hire the best shooter you can. And he says, uh, Uh, whoever wins the match, will both promote the match. And when they have the match, whoever wins, wins Houston. The other one's got to quit. He can never promote anymore. That was the agreement they had. And Dutch says, one of them picked me. He says, I'm going to Houston. I want you to go with me and watch my back. And uh, so he takes him in a Model T. This is in 1922. In a Model T, they (laughs) go across from Amarillo to Houston. Takes four days. In a, in, a, in a model t and not all there's no highways in a lot of it so they just went across fields and cut the uh, cut the barbed wire if they needed to and just rode across the state to, to houston they get there and they're going to have the shoot and uh, roy says they go to the ring for the shoot and he says he had seen he said he'd never seen uh dutch do anything other than wrestle you know and he said uh he said so they got to they locked up uh, the guy the dutch is uh, wrestling with for the rights to Houston basically and he said the guy pushed dutch into the ropes the very first move they made and he said uh the referee was a part of the deal the referee got between the two of them and he kind of slid in front of dutch so that the the wrestler could hit dutch he, he gave him a little opening he kind of got blinded the dutch's view and then uh Dutch caught the punch. He dropped, blocked the punch and he hit the guy. And Roy <laughs> said it sounded like somebody shot a gun. He said he never heard a sound like that. And he said that, uh, that the guy backed up the, the wrestler that he hit. He said he wobbled back on his feet. And he said when I looked at him, he said his left eyeball had fallen out of the socket. He broke the orbital bone in his eye and his eye was hanging down. Jeez. And he said, all the, he fell on his knees. He started vomiting right there. He said, the bell rang. It didn't last two minutes, the whole deal. And he said, then they, they came in the ring. The guys wanted to help them. He, they put his eye back up there and they put a towel over it and they got him to the dressing room. And Dutch told Roy, Roy's about to leave the ring with him. Dutch going to the ring. He says, you get right on my back, boy. He says, I don't. He, and Roy says, why? And he says, I want you get the knife. You know, he was thinking that somebody was going to try to kill him before he got yeah. to the Okay, Absolutely. so so he's popped his orbital bone. And the guy's fall, his eye fell out, and it, they start the dressing room. And Dutch says, "No, no, we go to his dressing room." And Roy said, "Oh, why, why?" And he said, "Follow me. Stay on my back again. Don't let him kill me." <laughs> and so he gets to the dressing room with Roy, and Roy said he went over, and the guy's sitting on the stool, and he's got the towel over his eye. They're about to take him to the hospital and roy tapped him on the shoulder i mean the uh, the dutch taps the guy on the shoulder and he said when the guy looked up he saw it was dutch he was like oh god he come to get me again right <laughs> one of those deals and uh, and uh, he goes uh, he goes dutch says to him he goes uh, you know uh, he says uh, you you really lucky he goes a uh, uh, good thing you quit he said uh, i was already looking at that other eye <laughs> <laughs> That's some badasses that, that. When you get I like-
0: love it. I love it. So now, um, fast forward a little bit. Somewhere around the nineteen forties, fifties, somewhere around there, um, Roy Welch gets the idea to uh, to build an arena. And my understanding is that he built this place himself.
1: Uh, that, he might have. He really did all kinds of things. I've never heard about his arena. What city uh, yeah, was that well, in? You know, I, I'm using
0: that term, uh, term. arena. It basically what the, the story goes that he took a an old barn and created a place for people to come and see wrestling.
1: Oh, I can believe that. I can yeah. definitely believe that.
0: You know. Yeah, uh, and that's that's the story. Uh, and by the way, if you're interested in who told the story, it was your brother Robert.
1: Uh, okay. Well, hell, Rob might have worked out there. He's old as hell anyway, Rob. Oh jeez. <laughs> he could have worked out in that building.
0: That's funny.
1: Uh, That's my granddad, funny. I don't know if you knew this. My granddad trained the first wrestling bear. The very first wrestling bear. You know, yeah. I, I did know that. I actually That's did awesome. know that. Yeah, her name was Ginger. Her name was Ginger. And uh and Roy was so crazy. Uh, he was so bad, he was so tough that uh, that the bear was scared of him. That's it. And and this bear had all of her claws and all of her teeth. You know, when they train bears nowadays, they, they pull out their canine teeth and they pull yeah. out their claws. They put it all. and he was the only one who put the muzzle on her, and he put these mittens over her feet, and uh, and uh, he kept her. He kept the bear in the backyard, staked out. And let her out in the, out of her cage a lot, and she stayed in the backyard. My, grand, my dad was about 12 years old, and uh, the bear got him. The bear got hold of him. He got too close to the bear, and the bear was going to kill him. And Roy happened to be home that day, or I wouldn't be here. And, uh, right. you know, Roy, Roy came around, screamed at the bear, and the bear ran. She was scared of Roy. You know, and I asked him, I said, how do you scare a bear? You know, how do you make a bear scared of you, right? And he said, I slapped him. And I said, "Oh, wait a minute!" I said, "You know, bears will slap your head off." I hear, you know. And he goes, "He goes, not my head, by God!" He said, "I slapped that bear." He said, "Until that bear just let me do whatever I wanted to do." Nope. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, man. He was—he was a pretty rugged dude. I
0: heard, man. I heard some stories. Dan, go ahead. You got Ron Fuller. Go ask away, brother.
3: Oh man, this this is great. Uh, you know, Ron, I I got started in. The wrestling, as as it were, as a, as a historian, the work in different uh, syndicated column I wrote, and then obviously uh, before I joined the podcast. So hearing hearing these old school tales, I mean, I know the original Dutch Mantell was a very tough looking dude, and some of your your history, obviously, we you've come up before. We've had uh, several Tennessee legends on the show, and and your name always comes up anytime you talk Tennessee or Florida, oh, and. Yeah. It's, it's, I, so I want to say I appreciate this honor being able to talk to you. I was hoping you could actually expand on something. Um, you, you brought up obviously the original Dutch Mantel, but when you're talking 1910, 1920s, photographs really weren't, and obviously there's no video, but photographs really weren't what they were. Uh, the pictures of some of the talent back then, especially Dutch Mantel, I mean, if you were to grow just a grizzled, tough looking guy, in a in a in a lab, he would come out looking like oh yeah 1910 such Mantell. Yeah. I'm wondering how even at the time, how much of that was legitimate. These guys were you know broken teeth and scarred faces, and how much of that was really them, and how much of it was I hate to say, but like the old carnival where you know maybe the strong man would oil himself up a little bit, you know uh, dr- not drink water that day. How much of that was was them, and how much of that was maybe a little bit of showmanship.
1: Oh, I probably. I, I would say there's a little bit of it. Uh, I, I got a great story about Dutch. My granddad told me, uh, he said Dutch Mantel was one of the richest dudes in the West. I mean, he, was, he had a Model T Ford when nobody could afford a car, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I asked my granddad, I said, well, how did he get rich? And he said he had the greatest gimmick going. He said he would travel to the old towns out west, and he said he would go into town in the bar late in the afternoon when the guys were starting to congregate, and he would be real mouthy. He was a small guy. He wasn't real big. He was real mouthy, and he would say, Oh, damn, I'm the fastest guy in this town. I'll race any some bitch in this town. And uh. You know, and uh, then he would get some bets up, you know. People didn't know who the hell he was, you know. And they thought, well, maybe this guy's fast, you know, maybe. So he'd get a few bets up and he'd go out in the street and they'd mark out a little raceway and they'd say, go, and the guy'd run off and leave him. So he'd go back in the bar and he'd be hot, throw his hat down. God damn, I can't believe it, you know, but I'm strong. He said, "I, I I can beat anybody arm wrestling. Well bets got bigger this time right because he's small and they, you know they know he can't run and he's full of crap probably and uh, you know so, uh, so they uh, they bet a little more this go around right and the bets go up a little higher and then he they go out they they sit at a table in the the middle of the saloon and a few more people congregate they go running out there and they go hey there's an idiot down here betting and he don't know his (laughs) ass from a hole in the ground (laughs) you can get some you can get paid quick right so the the saloon about fills up you know and then they have the arm wrestling contest and the guy just slams his arm down he don't even try, you know, wham, and then everybody's like, wow, boy, Pat, give me that money. So he's paying out a little bit of bread to all of them. He's paying off, and then he's mad. He's really cussing now, and he goes, hi, damn, he goes, I'll beat anybody wrestling here, Anybody. Oh man, he said Roy said that Dutch said the bar went empty. They'd run out of the par, man, and they'd go get all their buddies, everybody in town, and they'd go find the big tough guy in town, right? And they'd bring him oh, back. Man. And then Dutch would say, I double the bet, by God, double the bet. And uh You know, so then he's got every dollar in town just about, right? And then they would go out in the road right out in the front of the old saloon and Dutch would just decimate the poor son (laughs) of a gun. I mean, it wouldn't last 30 seconds. And then he would fill his wallet and he would go 10, 15 miles down the road and do it again and do it again and do it again. Uh, And he got to be fabulously wealthy.
0: God bless. Him. That's beautiful. That's
1: hilarious, it.
0: Mike Messier. I know you are the world's number one Ron Fuller fan. So I got it, and plus you set this up. So now, my friend, have at it.
2: Well, Ron Fuller, ask as uh, many questions as you want. Well, I've got, I've got two, two big ones I'd like to get in. But first one, Ron, thanks for being on the show. And Ron, watching some of your matches. It's interesting you're, you're built at six foot nine and, and I was thinking of guys like yourself, uh, Don Leo Jonathan, I think was 6 nine. I think uh, Mean Mark Callis, or the undertaker as we've known him for the last 20 or 30 years is 610. And I was just kind of wondering about the actual in-ring style that you had because at 6 nine you you by and most standards are are close to a giant but not quite in that Andre the Giant or Big John Stud level of height. Was So what I liked about guys like yourself, Don Leo, Jonathan, and, and Mean Mark Callis, and the spoiler, is that you guys could, could still have a traditional wrestling match, but still have that height advantage. So you can take advantage of your height, but you're not the stereotypical giant either. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that, how your size being kind of that almost a giant size, fit into your in-ring career?
1: Uh, What I did when I was, when I first started wrestling, you know, and I was tall uh, and I was thin, uh, I I made it, I kind of set my my, uh, training. I wanted to be just as fast as a small guy. I didn't want to be the giant. I wanted to be a big, tall, strong guy that could move just as quick as a small guy could. And uh and I and I really pretty much accomplished that. I I threw drop kicks. I did everything. anybody flying head scissors. I didn't care what it was. I I ha- I felt like I I had to learn to do it. And uh, so my style fit that I could work with everybody. And uh, and it made sense. I mean, if I'd only worked with guys who were six nine, like you say, there wasn't a bunch of them. It'd have been hard for me to find uh find opponents. Been hard for me to find find work. Right. No, so uh...
2: yeah, I think I think it did too. And then that kind of goes with my follow-up question, which is um I was very good friends with Ox Baker, the master of the the hurt punch. And um, you know, ox even called it the hurt punch after Stan Stajak passed away because they both did the heart punch. I didn't know that ox traveled around the whole territories, and I'm I'm guessing that you and Ox cross paths. I'm I'm pretty sure you did. Did you and Ox Baker ever work together? Because just on a personal level, he was such a good friend of mine. I, I spoke at his funeral. He was a really like a father figure to me in wrestling. And me and my buddy, David Gear both really cherished our friendship with Ox. Do you have any Ox Baker stories? Or
1: Oh, I, I, I wrestled Ox several times. Ox wrestled for me in my southeastern Pensacola territory in 1979 uh hulk hogan was breaking in with me at the same time yep. so i had Hulk hogan and ox and myself and uh i had two territories at that time one in pensacola and one in knoxville both of them called southeastern and i would go back and forth between the two territories uh and uh ox i worked with many times i really liked ox uh he was a great guy and you know people look at ox and he's a pretty scary looking dude you know i mean you know, you had to you had to really uh you had to really think uh well what what's what am I going to encounter here, you know. But uh Ox was a very, very nice guy and uh and he he uh I had pretty decent matches with Ox. And you mentioned Big John Stud. I worked with Big John Stud in St. Louis. I've worked with Big John Stud before too. Yeah. A lot of big guys. You mentioned Don Leo Jonathan way back there. He's one of the guys I wanted to uh I, I kind of copied as much as I could John Leo Donathan's work. I mean, uh, he was to me one of the best big men probably ever worked. Oh my God!
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely.
1: And then the you other don't, put- you don't get no argument
0: from me. I'll tell you what, he was absolutely amazing. You know, right. can I ask you a question? Uh, you know, talk along the same line, and Mikey, I'll I'll get back to you in just a second, but you're talking about big guys. Um, and and the uh, the physical factor And I got a question for you And I've seen a lot of big guys Who come across as lumbering They come across as clumsy or sloppy How effective can a good big guy be With regard to ticket sales Because big guys are not necessarily known For being the best ticket movers they're great for attractions. The exception to the rule, and I'm not saying this because you're here, but the exception to the rule, Ron Fuller and Robert Fuller, because yeah. you guys are probably two of the the biggest guys back in the day when you know. Let's be honest, you didn't have, you didn't have a lot of the six, 10, 7 foot guys running around. It no, was no, rare. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, we just. Uh... We try to make a point of being able, like I said, I think the secret was being able to work with everybody. Uh, when but, you own how your own do you company make it believable
0: though, it's, uh, you know what I mean? How do you make that believable for like for a big, you know, six, you know, six nine, six ten guy, you know, keep in mind, anybody you wrestle is going to be smaller than you. Pretty yeah. much everybody, right?
1: You have to learn how to sell. You have to learn how to sell differently. That's you know, a- uh, you know, and, uh, and you you got to learn to sell for little guys in in some respects but you don't want to overdo it to where you kill yourself you know you want to you want to keep your own strength you want to get over yourself but uh i always felt like uh smaller guys if they could work and they and then they were really good and if their style was was solid yeah where when they threw a punch that you could sell it uh then i would sell for them uh otherwise you know if i if it wasn't then uh Obviously, I wasn't going to hurt myself to get them over. That's for damn sure. Yeah, exactly.
0: Then that's, and that's a, I'm glad you answered it that way because, Ron, that's exactly where I was going. Mikey, go ahead.
2: My my next question would be about uh, the early 80s, maybe 82, 83 it was almost it, what comes to my mind, Ron. But correct me if I'm wrong. Almost like a wrestling version of the the Hatfields and the McCoys between <laughs> Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, his his younger brother Rob Fuller, uh, cousin Jimmy Golden, against uh, Bob Armstrong and various Armstrong family members, oh, and just the passion and and the the heat, the excitement, the the emotional investment of the fans, which is something that this show continuously talks about that we want to see that emotional investment come back to professional wrestling, regardless of its WWE, AEW, New Japan, emotional investment. Can you tell us how that over storyline of, of you and Bob Armstrong at the focus of it, but other guys getting in the mix as like a family feud, how, how that affected that fan base and, and maybe if there's any, we, I'm always hoping there's some promoter of the future listening to our show, some 12-year-old kid that's going to save the business in 20 years. But can you tell us how some of those dynamics uh, were approached from a promotional standpoint, the in-ring action and everything else, the storyline arc?
1: Oh, uh, hey, we probably had the greatest running feud in the history of wrestling. Uh, the Armstrongs and the Fullers, uh, Jimmy Golden, my cousin, uh he was part of the stud stable. Uh, all of that stuff got started and it just kind of uh, it and then Bob just happened to have some of the greatest workers coming up underneath them. Brad Armstrong, in my opinion was the greatest one of the greatest workers of all time and uh, you know he had Scott, he had Steve, he had all these young sons coming on and uh, you know it, it was perfect. It was perfect for us to have a stable, We're the heels and Bob to be the babyface. We actually really kicked that angle off between us, though, in 1982 in a world championship match between me and Flair. And Bob Armstrong was the referee. Bob had never healed in his life. And uh, we talked about it. I said, Bob, we want to turn you heel, man. And I didn't know whether he was going to be a great heel or not, had no idea. But, uh, you know, I thought that uh, if this works, we can turn the family situation around. All of a sudden, uh, they're the heels and we're the baby faces. We'll mm-hmm. get another two or three years run out of it. So, uh, Bob turned the heel that night. Uh, we had such a hot finish that night that uh, Flair, when I told him what the finish was, he looked at me and he laughed and he said, Ron, he goes, we're going to get killed tonight. <laughs> you know. And, and, and I said, oh, well, Rick, I know it's pretty hot. And Mobile, Alabama is where we did it. It was a very oh, hot, hot city. <laughs> uh, I got arrested oh, the very first time I ever wrestled there as a heel. I got taken to jail. So, uh, you know, it was a hot town to work in. And Flair knew it. And Flair was like, oh, my God, Ron, this is horrible. And then Bob says, Ron, would well, do whatever you want. Uh, Bob turned out to be one of the greatest heels I ever saw and what we did is we didn't do like tradition would have it we didn't have him have his sons turn heel we had him turn heel on all of them even his sons he slapped Brad on TV because Brad would be the
3: guy
0: and Ron that was the genius of it that was the genius it was just bullet Bob that was yep. it. Yep. Yep. And nobody saw it coming. Not oh, even the Oh no, kids. no.
1: No. Oh, the it was unreal that night. I mean, oh, the fans man. were just they were shocked. It was like, wow, yeah, what nobody on saw here? that coming. Yeah. So uh, you know, and that's that's where we rode. We parlayed that into a probably five year running feud between the Armstrongs and the studs table. Oh my god, yeah. Go ahead, Mikey.
2: Well, it, it kind of reminds me a bit of the Von Eriks Freebirds feud, except in your case, uh, you did the, the group heel face switch, which the, the even the Freebirds and the Von Erichs never attempted that. And I couldn't help but think of, of the 2010 era John Cena, who, who really could have been freshened up if he had turned heel at some point. And it's just too bad that pro wrestling or the WWE especially has gotten so regulated by itself that they don't take more chances. Um, can, can you talk about, as a promoter, maybe I'm
1: wrong, but is, is it important to take chances with storytelling? Oh, yeah. Question. Yeah. You know, you know, when you're a promoter and you're a booker, uh, what you want to do is uh, you want to keep them s- sitting on the edge of their seat. You never want them to know where it's going. And if you can do that you. when you're building your territory or you're running your company, that's what fills your buildings because they say, oh, I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. And this Bob Armstrong angle we just talked about, there wasn't a single person. There was still 11,000 people in that building. There wasn't a single person that said, Bob Armstrong's going to become a heel tonight. I mean, right. none of them. They, if somebody would have told you that going in, you'd have said, ah, oh, bullshit. You know, that exactly. Ain't, but, you know, exactly. so, you know, it's all about storyline. It was all about storyline. It was all about being five moves ahead of the of, of your fans. You know, they think they got it figured. And then, wow, they go, oh, my God. What? how did that happen? You know, uh, and yeah, that's what it was all about back in those days. You know, Ron, we uh, we had the other
0: day we had um, a gentleman uh, on the show named Dave Lagrecker from Busted Open Radio. Interestingly enough, he grew up in the Northeast where I grew up. In fact, not far from me. But also, interestingly enough, the first wrestling that I ever saw and that he ever saw, and we talked about it on the show, was wrestling from Georgia with Gordon Solie. Right. Georgia Championship Wrestling. First wrestling I ever saw. And it was, uh, in fact, Dan's going to pop when I say this. We looked at wrestling from Georgia as, quote, the you're laughing right Dan. The real stuff, and WWF was the fake stuff. Yeah, I can okay? believe that. I can believe that. He, w- here's the question I got for you. Was it intentional to base Southern wrestling in that element of realism, was that a purposeful, deliberate thing that promoters did down south?
1: It, absolutely. My granddad was a shooter. Uh, we talked about it back, way back in the early twenties. My father was a shooter. I was taught to shoot when I was thirteen years old. Guys would come out and knock on my dad's door and say, "I want to mat- wrestle a wrestler," and he'd say, "Can you beat this skinny kid?" And uh, I always, and nobody ever got past me. You know, so so when you sure. grow up with that uh, in in your background, you want your sport to be solid. You don't want people to see through it. And you go to the, the extremes. You don't uh, blade, you bust each other the hard way. I mean, you take it to the next level. Yes, sir. And uh, when you do that, you build fans that believe from the mm-hmm. bottom of their hearts because they've never seen anything that they couldn't believe in. You give them stuff to believe in. And that's Thank what you made so it. much for makes saying it a, that. That's gone. That's gone. Man, oh that, my that God. You never brother, be there anymore.
0: I'll tell you what, my brother. We had uh oh, Dan and Mikey were on the show. In fact, when we discussed it, we we're like begging, begging, like, where is our wrestling again? We're what happened to our our beloved sport. Dan, I want you to pick up on uh, where I left off on the realism element and then throw in a couple of three or four or five questions of your own. Go ahead.
3: Well, no, um, (laughs) it it worked. Angela is absolutely right. And that's why I was cracking up before he finished the sentence, because I I grew up uh, in an area where I got both. I got the NWA on one channel and the WWF on the other. And then the local stores that had all the territory tapes. So Tennessee and Florida and all. And there was definitely a feeling there and that was part of the aura that your family had was that the fullers were the the, the smartest family in wrestling not just your in ring psychology but everything that you did and it really added to that level of realism because there were moments that your feud you know we Mikey touched on your feud with the armstrongs where who knows i mean you guys Probably beating each other up in the parking lot when the cameras aren't rolling. Like, as a as a fan, you 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 get that feeling that's long since been gone. Um, but I was hoping. Actually, speaking of of the plans and the old times, uh, one of my more favorite moments you guys had during this feud with the Armstrongs was you introduced the the Southeast Continental title and you gave it to uh, Michael Hayes with of course that led to the that that story where you beat him and you wanted to leave the territory but you were contractually obligated to stay and and you and Armstrong fought over that. I'm curious if you would mind to to go off what we talked about last week kind of peel the curtain back a little bit. How does that conversation go about we're going to introduce a new title. We're going to put it on a star as big as Michael Hayes is really just as a prop to continue your feud with the Armstrongs. How does that conversation come about?
1: Are uh, you you know We used to do our booking uh, traveling on the road. We lived in Pensacola. We would go to Birmingham. It's a four-hour trip. And sometimes uh, me and Bob, uh, before I was a heel and before he was a heel, we would go as baby faces and we would talk on that way home. And uh we would come up with all these outlandish ideas. I mean, you spent that four hours not just drinking beer and talking about your girlfriend <laughs> you you, you, tried, you talked about business. it was important. in sure. fact, uh, we like to talk about it more than anything else, you know it was like and and the great thing about it is, is when you came up with these rare ideas and you went in these wild directions, uh it just it just made business better, you know, and so it was like. It was like you, you take your travel time and you turned it into your money time. And uh, it's where you created exactly. your ideas. I, That's where you got your stuff at, was on these trips.
3: I like that. If I may follow up on that, actually, speaking of the realism of wrestling, you guys were still bound by this narrative of kayfabe. How hard was it for you and and, and the Armstrongs to work together? Like, I mean, obviously you, you couldn't, you traveled together. You had to. You guys worked together a lot outside the business. But heaven forbid the wrong fan or the wrong group sees you guys at a restaurant or a bar together. How did how did that... Can you kind of tell us how life was having to keep the realism while still having to run the company?
1: It was easy. It was easy because I had grown up in that. Uh, I'd seen my father do it for many, many years. I watched Roy do it. I mean... Uh, if you broke K Fabe and, and you worked for me, you were gone. It was, it was a, mm-hmm. a one time sure. mistake. You know, yeah. Yeah, you were sitting in that restaurant with that eel, uh, you're fired. You're gone. You know, what I mean, uh, so, it, and if you didn't do that, how are you going to maintain that, that, that uh, legitimacy that you want right. to create with your fans? And like you say, one guy sees that and he tells 100 people, and they tell 100 more people. And, you know, so it was just, uh, it was known when you came to work for us that uh, that's a no-no. And uh, the quickest way Ron, to get your ass out of there is break a fade. You know, Ron, we
0: actually heard, and Dan, I'll, I'll give you the, the questioning back in just a second. It's interesting, we, we had one of our, our favorite people on the show here is uh, Karen McDaniel, Wahoo's wife. Mm-hmm. And, Karen told us a story, and I didn't realize that this extended to the wives, too. She said that if she ever got caught at a local coffee shop or, uh, you know, a little diner or someplace with, uh, you know, the wife or girlfriend of Wahoo's, you know, uh, opponent or nemesis. She said that the guys would get fired based on what the wives did. If yeah. they broke kayfabe, the guys would get, and, and does that happen in your territory?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, you, had to, you had to include the wives because fans, if they took their wives to the matches, the fans, it don't take them long. They talk all the time. They go, hey, that's so-and-so's wife. And that's, you know. And if they see you someplace, I'll tell you how strict I was about the, the way I was brought up. I, I was married three times, and I never smartened up a single wife. <laughs> Dan, I didn't you smarten pick- up my own wife. Damn, uh, you, you know what I pick, mean? Uh, you know I, that that's damn. how important it was for me. You know when they saw the blood, they were like, "Wow, geez, man!" You know, uh, whatever it was, and uh, that's a commitment to the sport uh, that, uh, that that that's gone. I mean, it'll never obviously it's gone, never be there. Right. But uh, there weren't very many people that were as committed to the sport to do that well, to, to to preserve the cafe part of it like amen. that.
3: If I may, then to look at that, because since you said you hadn't, which I, that's quoted a century right there, three wives didn't smart up a single one of them. <laughs> uh, when we had different wrestling wives on, we actually had a, a wrestling wives theme show, and they everybody who, who's ever been in the business as the wife, a girlfriend, had a very similar story. If you, if you don't mind me asking, then if if your wives weren't involved behind the scenes, because really. And even some of the wrestlers we've had on the show have said that the wives and girlfriends and that secondary family was kind of the heart and soul of what was happening behind the scenes. Dan he had tell the locker room, but Dan they
0: tell Ron who we had on.
3: Oh, right the 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 wives show we had uh, Karen McDaniel, we had uh, Jimmy Snuka and Bruiser Brody's wife as well. Oh. And- so, I mean, uh, those yeah. you, three of the best backstage, or I should say backstage, but three of the best behind-the-scenes stories from you know, amazing talents. And and I'm wondering that if you didn't, if you don't mind me asking, if you if your wife wasn't involved in the way they were, then who did a lot of that for you? Or did you guys just do all that yourself and kind of figure it out?
1: Well, you, if you're talking about the business part of it, uh, you know, I had, uh, I had one wife that worked in the business. She... She traveled and uh, she she sold tickets she took care of box offices and uh you couldn't get anybody to trust any more than that to take care yeah. of your money yeah, you know I and that, she man. was and she had heart and soul in it. she realized that this is our livelihood and uh, so you know uh, uh you I, I you had to uh you you had to do it was kind of strange the way you dealt with your family members and that type of thing you know about the the cafe part of stuff and uh, but, uh, but we we were really lucky. I mean Bob Armstrong's wife who just uh, passed away a few days ago as a matter of fact yeah mm, you know I and, heard that and uh, yeah. you know was a great lady and and she uh, she was a perfect example of a Russer's wife. I mean when she went she would she would sit in the very back uh, she wouldn't let anybody know she was there or who, who she was. She wouldn't dare tell anybody, oh, that's my husband up there or that's my sons. I mean, uh, everybody, the, a lot of the women that were around the wrestlers that we dealt with, they were pretty much kayfabe too. They, they knew that, uh, that uh, you had to protect it. It was, it was vital to your, to your livelihood. Uh, you were stupid not to protect it, as a matter of fact.
0: That's
3: yeah, fair. Sure. Well, if I can, then one final question, and I'll throw it back to these guys. Uh, Karen McDaniel had a lot of stories about the designing robes and wardrobe and whatnot. So I, I'm really curious, while that's still fresh in my head, when, when the Tennessee Stud debuted, he had a mask. Who designed the mask that you wore?
1: Uh, the lady that made most of my robes made Flair's robes. She made a lot of other guys. who made uh, Johnny Walker Wrestling 2's robe. Olivia Walker, Johnny Walker's wife. That's okay. right. And Karen she told us that I seamstress. forgot all about that. Yeah, You're right. She wasn't just a seamstress for wrestlers. She started actually out, uh, started out as a country and Western singers, uh, Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton and all those sequined outfits that they were wearing back in those days. Mm-hmm. She was making the outfits for the country and Western stars. And that's why Flair liked their jacket style. Uh, he was a lots of sequins. I never used a lot of sequins on my jacket, but just the back and the logo. But, right. uh, she, she did everything my mask she did the, my my robes uh all of it and uh what a great lady she was too great, great personality star, yeah. and, and did tremendous work beautiful work
0: yeah i'll tell you what we just we just lost johnny walker too just uh just days ago in fact um what are your memories give us uh uh, uh while it's still fresh in my mind Give us a little bit of um, some of your
1: recollections
0: or your memories of uh, Mr. Wrestling to Johnny Walker.
1: Uh, geez, Johnny Johnny, and I go way, way back. He's uh, a good friend of my dad. He goes back into Roy's day almost, way, way back. Uh, uh, I'll tell you my best memory of Johnny, oddly enough, guys, is uh, a year ago in May, May of 2019, Johnny lives in uh, Hawaii. And Johnny came to, the every year there's a Continental Wrestling Reunion in a town called Dothan, Alabama, and Johnny Walker was invited to that. And uh, Johnny and I sat on the tailgate of of a pickup truck right next to the building, and nobody, everybody's all inside, and we had probably 45 minutes to talk, he and I, about our career. I worked with Johnny Walker the very first night, uh, that he won the uh, Georgia heavyweight championship. He won it ten times, uh, mm-hmm. and and I went into that territory when the Atlanta wrestling war started, and they were having the war. Watts was going to come to Florida and become the Booker, and Watts wouldn't put over wrestling two because Watts didn't didn't he didn't get along with wrestling two. He didn't think he was big enough, whatever, to to put him over. So. Uh, Bill, Bill Watts picked me out of Florida. He said, uh, they asked him, who will you put over? He said, I'll put over Ron Fuller out of Florida. So I went into Atlanta and Watts put the Georgia strap on me. Three weeks later, I went and put it on wrestling too. And wrestling too caught fire and became probably the biggest star in the history of Georgia wrestling. Undoubtedly the biggest star in the history of Georgia wrestling. And, uh, and, uh, Johnny, uh, Johnny was the type of worker that, uh, uh, he didn't make any money till he put a mask on. He actually, you know, I, I I know Johnny really well. He actually worked for nine his first nine years without the mask as Rubber Man, Rubber right. Man Johnny Walker. Yeah, he sure uh, did. And then he came into Florida. He quit for two years, and then they brought him into Florida and they put a mask on him, and he called him the Grappler. Uh, he did better. He did better. But when he left there, he only worked for two years in Florida, and he quit again. Now, this is a story that's a pretty amazing story. He went to, uh, he, when he quit the second time, he moved to Tennessee, and he started working in the gas station, pumping gas, Johnny Walker. Yeah. Okay? Leo Garibaldi's in Atlanta uh, with uh, Oli, and they've got Wrestling One there, Tim Woods, Mr. Wrestling there, okay? Yeah. And uh, Leo gets this idea. He says, uh, I want to, uh, uh, we need another wrestler, Mr. Wrestling, another Mr. Wrestling. And uh, so he tells Ole about it. And uh, because Leo had been there in 72 in Florida, when Johnny was there as the grappler, he remembered him and he said, we need to find Johnny Walker. And they tracked him down. They drove Ole and Leo Garibaldi to Tennessee and to the gas station where uh, Johnny was working. And took him off to the side and they said, here's what we want to do. Leo says, here's what I want to do, Johnny. I want you to be Mr. Wrestling number two. I want to ultimately turn. I want you and Woods to be partners. I want to make big stars. Then I want you to turn on him. He gave him the whole program for two years in advance. Yeah. And Johnny says, okay. Okay. Geez, man, this sounds like you're going to use me, right? And Johnny went in there, and the rest is history, man. He cranked that yeah, just boy. that angle, blew Johnny Walker uh, to the top. And uh, and he he stayed there for years and years in Georgia with that.
0: Well, and- I'll tell you what, Ron, we actually had Magnum TA here. And uh and when Magnum was here, it was it was bittersweet. It really was listening to Magnum. He worked. He had that angle with Johnny Walker. Dan, you remember Magnum mm-hmm. telling us that story? Yes, sir. It's, it was. Yeah, go ahead and, and relate that story to Ron. It's really. I want you to hear this, Ron.
3: Well, he had. Um, I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. You're talking about uh, when, when when he first came up when he was when he was the the the, the rough business that that one or
1: yeah the Rubber Man. Oh, you're talking about Magnum? Well, or- yeah,
3: when because when, obviously you know um, the 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 narrative behind Magnum TA being the greatest, the, the greatest what if story in the history of wrestling. Yeah, but but he talked about coming up and and the the for lack of a better term, the way he told it was the the very rough handling he got at at the hands of Johnny Walker, and it was more of a he wasn't getting the the what's the term. Um uh potatoed as much yeah. as he was um yeah this was this was, a, this, was <laughs> this was the evidence that I mean when, when when Walker was gonna go that rough on you he knew you had something this guy yeah. is gonna be huge and I'm gonna beat the tar out of him until we polish this this stone and he did and obviously you, you saw well unfortunately, like I said unfortunately the great what if story but Magnum really had the narration that, that if he didn't get those initial for lack of a better term, beatings and, and rough matches with wrestling 2 coming up, he would never have become the star
1: he was. Yeah. That's a, that's a great, it's a great concept. And you know, Johnny was like that. Johnny, Johnny wanted he liked to work stiff. He liked to work tight. Yeah, uh, we heard yeah, you know, <laughs> and and uh, the night that I put the championship belt on him, we worked a finish in which we both went over the top rope and out onto the floor. I brought him back into the ring. He got on the apron. I was in the ring. I picked him up and I, I, I brought him up to, to drop him on the top of his head. He pulled mm-hmm. a gimmick out and he hit me with the gimmick. Uh, then he put the gimmick up and I struggled to my feet and he hit me. He was I was the first guy he ever hit the bionic knee on. Okay. Oh, that, yeah. He had not yeah. he had not <laughs> developed that finish. And then he says, "Look, Ryan, He says, let's do that part of it. But he says I want to hit you with this fl- running knee lift." And I said, yeah. Well, I've never seen that, Johnny. And he says, Oh, Andy, don't worry, Ron. You know, it'll be it'll be good, you know. And uh, he set me up and and uh, it wasn't a knee lift that bothered me, it was the slap in the back. He would yeah. always slap you <laughs> at the same time he hits you with the knee to get that sound. And uh,
2: oh so, my God, uh Johnny yeah.
1: was a tremendous worker. I really loved Ron and Johnny and uh, guys didn't respect Johnny, he got respect. Yeah. It was a
2: million dollar knee lift. I think it was called yeah, a million exactly. dollar knee lift. Yep. A million Ron, dollar why was lift. Johnny yeah, not.
0: Why was Johnny not bigger than than he should have been? He this guy should have been a superstar, a megastar. What was? I mean, I know he had some. Uh, well, I'm going I'll call it issues. He's he had some. You mentioned he quit. And he went back and then he quit again. He had some issues that whether they were personal demons, I don't know. I I don't never knew the man, but for whatever reason, he could never get his footing. He could never get his, uh, his, he never got into a comfort zone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you understand where I'm going with it. And I'm not you know rest in peace uh, you know mr wrestling too but for whatever reason i don't know why but he just never found his place for some
1: odd reason i think uh, he 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 his career didn't develop until he was way into his 30s maybe even close to 40 because before he became wrestling too OK, uh, he his his good days were behind him almost. He, he, he just he happened to get into a tremendous angle uh, with a great gimmick and, uh, and he lived his gimmick. That was the one thing about Johnny. I don't know if you guys are aware he had a tremendous relationship with with uh, president, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. Yes, uh, sir. Fabulous. And, and Jimmy Carter invited him to the inauguration when he became president. And uh, Johnny says, yeah, I'll come if I can wear my mask. And uh, mm-hmm. and and Jimmy Carter went to the trouble to find out from the Secret Service if they let him, and he said no. And Johnny says, "I'm not coming." <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, he yeah. he was crazy like that. He he he. You never saw Johnny without he take a shower with his hood on. No. And the guys, in the we knew who the hell he was. You know what I mean? What the hell are you doing, Johnny? So you don't have to fake me, you know. What the hell? Take your mask off, right? Exactly. I mean, he was just really, really into that gimmick. And he lived yeah. it. He lived it. Mikey, go ahead, brother.
2: Well, uh, I'm just glad that Johnny didn't have a uh, little mask to wear on his own his, anyway. But uh, <laughs> you know, that would be something to see. Um Ron, I, you mentioned wrestling wars and, you know, fans today, younger fans are getting all hot and bothered about AEW versus NXT, but this is nothing new for wrestling historians. And I saw something about Ron Wright tried tried to challenge you in your promotion, if I'm not mistaken, at one point. And can you tell us what it's like to be in the heart of the battle, the heart of the dragon of a territorial wrestling war where two promotions are competing more or less for the same audience? Can you kind of expand on that from the promoter side of things? Good
1: question. It, it's sad. It, it's a sad thing. Um, I went in to Knoxville and, and started Southeastern Wrestling in 1974. Uh, I built it into the best, probably the best small wrestling territory in the world. Never would there when it was there one better than that was. Short trips, big money, uh, great talent. Had a great cruise, one after another after another. 1979, I got into a situation. It wasn't just Ron Wright. It was Bob Roop. It was uh, Ronnie Garvin. It was Bob Warden Jr. and the great Malenko. Five basically of my guys decided that they wanted to try to take the territory over, and uh, so we battled through the summer of 1979, and uh, and I watched my company that I had taken years to build that was selling out everywhere we went and I watched those houses die during that time frame. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the the Plan B videos? You ever seen that I've watched him.
2: I've watched him. And as a Ronnie Garvin fan from the Crockett, it was very disappointing to be honest, because I've (laughs) I've always been a Ronnie Garvin fan. And I I, I saw him defend his title against Ric Flair in Baltimore, October 13th, 1987. I have a photograph that I took. It was very disappointing for me as a wrestling fan to see Ronnie in that plan B thing. It was worse than Eddie Mansfield.
1: Well, you know, can you imagine uh, those five guys sit there and just off the business? I mean, just, Plainly said, you know, it's all, it's all, it's nothing real about it. And, uh, can you imagine this is 1979? What would have happened if that had got had that video had ever gotten out? Uh, you know, it would have, it would have put an early end to wrestling. Basically oh my God, it, it would have really yeah. affected all the territories. It would have affected everybody, all of professional wrestling. So, Absolutely. you know, uh, it, it was a bad, it was a bad, a horrible experience for me. Uh, I sold out to Jim Barnett. Uh, And I left, I went, uh, I already had another territory in Pensacola, the South End, I called it. And I went to Pensacola and I just committed myself to building Pensacola. I actually built twice as good a territory uh, after I left Knoxville as the one I had built in Knoxville.
3: While we're on the topic of uh the, the rivalries and territories i was wondering as somebody who was there kind of in the heart of everything if you had any inside information or if you could expand on the the rivalry between jerry jarrett and nick Gulas.
1: oh well yes man you know <laughs> nick Gulas and my grandfather roy were partners uh yes from way back uh actually my Roy went in there in the 30s in in Tennessee started building the south. And he didn't just build Tennessee, he went all the way to Gulf of Mexico. He was in 12 states at one time. Mm. And uh so uh he he, he took on uh, Nick Gulis as his partner. And Nick and Roy were about as different as anything you could possibly imagine. Roy was an old time shooter and a gruff and tough guy. And Nick was a, uh, you know, Oh man, real nice. all oh, please. I hope you like my payoff. And, you know, uh, <laughs> it was, you know they, 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 they were, they were anything but a match. And so uh, oh, when Roy kind of started fading out of the picture. Uh, it left Nick there basically uh, by himself and Jerry, and Roy had always kind of run the western side of the Tennessee territory. And Nick ran the eastern side, the Chattanooga, the Birmingham, the Nashville. Roy ran the Memphis and the towns uh, and on that side of it. So when they when they actually went to war, there's a whole lot behind that war. I don't know if you guys are aware, my dad was really big there long before Jared. Dad yeah. went in there in 1959. Memphis was one of the deadest towns in America Dad drew in Rustwood Park 30,000 people to watch, to watch, uh, to watch uh, uh, Sputnik Monroe and Billy Wicks wrestle for a Cadillac. Uh, was and, go, and, I was going to ask you, Ron,
0: I was going to ask you if that was folklore or whether that actually really happened. I heard they wrestled over a car. Yeah. They wrestled for a car.
1: Yeah, they wrestle. Yeah, Dad used to do it all the time. My dad drew. (laughs) My dad drew some monster crowds in his in his his career, in Mobile, Alabama, in Ladd Stadium. He and Mario Galento, with Joe Lewis as the referee, drew forty thousand people in 1957. In the
2: fifties.
1: In the fifties. Forty thousand people in Mobile, Alabama, and then he went to Memphis and drew thirty. 30, well, right around 30,000. He And in Atlanta, we went to Atlanta when I was a kid in Atlanta. Atlanta was on its ass. It was doing terrible. And he went oh. in and he built Atlanta in two years from 64 and 66. He drew in the Ponce de Leon baseball stadium. He wrestled Mario Galento and uh, Rocky Marciano was the referee. They drew 30-something thousand. Thirty something uh, thousand in Atlanta, and I crazy. hear people saying that the um, the biggest crowds ever drawn in Atlanta was in the Omni. Bullshit! I saw thirty thousand plus yeah. in that Ponce de Leon baseball stadium yes, sir. in the summer of '66. So you know
0: that's I, crazy. You know, I gotta, I have to ask you. Um, we heard well from several sources, but let me just tell you. A couple of the people that are really, really good friends of our show uh, are, of course, superstar Bill Dundee and uh, the handsome uh, one himself, the boogie-woogie man, Jimmy Valiant. He, Jimmy's a good friend of mine. Been I know Jimmy 33, 34 years now. Uh, Bill Dundee is just, you know, as ornery as ever, straight shooter as ever. Um, he's a good friend of our show, Ron. And they've told stories, and and I want to kind of clarify the territory system in Tennessee. Now, Jarrett, from what I know, and what we've been told, had the uh, Jackson, Tennessee, uh, Nashville, uh, the fairgrounds area, um, uh, up around... The uh, um, West Memphis area over in Arkansas, right? That, okay, and
1: yeah. then
0: uh, and he Nick had, uh, he also had was, Louisville, Louisville, yeah, Evansville, and, and they tell me that and yeah, that's right, uh, uh, Evansville, Indiana, um, Louisville, Kentucky, but they tell us that Nick Ghoulis was basically regulated to that one area. Basically, just they gave him enough, you know, to wet his beak because he was such a notoriously horrible promoter. He was notoriously cheap.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh he yeah.
0: Did, he didn't do the right thing for business, not for the boys, not for the fans. What, what was it about Nick that he just, for whatever reason, Ron, he just didn't get it? And why did he always want to push his
1: kid, George <laughs>
0: You, yeah, you yeah. know where
1: I'm going with this. Go oh, ahead, yeah, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, Nick became Roy's partner because Nick was a pretty decent businessman. Uh, he was good at keeping the books, but he didn't know shit about wrestling. He had no <laughs> concept of how to how to make that work. Yeah. Uh, he had guys that uh, he made one of them critical mistakes that you never make as a promoter. He had guys that he wanted to take care of and uh, he wanted to treat them differently than some of the other boys. And when you go, when you start doing that, you're, you're, you're on the way to killing your own business. So, uh, so, and, and then, like you said, he, he had George along the way, his payoffs were so notoriously bad that I remember Jack Briscoe and I having a conversation when I first went into Florida and I asked Jack, uh, if he'd ever worked in Nashville. And he said, yeah, Ron, he goes, I worked in Nashville. I sure did. And I said, well, how did that go? You know? And he said, well, he said, I went in there, man, I was driving a Cadillac. And he said, I came out on a Greyhound. <laughs> I mean, he said, they starved me. Nick Gulas starved me to death. He didn't like me. He didn't like my wrestling. You know, I mean, uh, so Nick didn't have an eye for talent. And where he really, really buried himself was with his son because he wanted his son to be a star. His son was not an athlete. He had no No, talent. Not at all. uh, And he just, once he made his son the champion, uh, he... He really signed his death warrant in the wrestling profession. He, he. he was I heard dead. that Ron, his son, was just a, a scrawny-looking,
0: skinny kid with could that couldn't fatten up if he tried. Not a good-looking guy. Either. I'm sorry to say that, but he wasn't a handsome, handsome kid.
1: You know. Oh no, uh, no, no, no! I I tell you, he worked for yeah. me one time. My dad forced me when I was Knoxville was just taking off. Yeah. Uh, we were selling out the Coliseum. They'd never even run in the Coliseum. It was too big to go to. We were selling it out pretty much every week. And my dad, I had one of these big shows. It was me against Harley Race. And dad mm-hmm. says, uh, can you put George Gulas on your card? And I was like, oh, my. I said, wait a minute, dad. You know <laughs> what I mean? George Gulas? I mean, uh, hell, I'd I, I like to, uh, he can come in at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. We're setting up the and work. You know, but I don't want anybody, any, any seven or eight, ten thousand people see any. You know, anyway, I used him, and uh, because as a favor for my dad, and dad says it's yeah. a favor for Nick. Nick sure. knows he's doing big money. He wants George to work in front of seven thousand people.
0: Oh my you know?
1: gosh. Okay, well, what the hell? So uh, I told my talent. They all hated Nick so bad. I said, listen, guys, I want you to be nice to George. And every one of them went, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 Ron. And I said, no, it'd really be doing me a favor to do this, okay? Right. So so I had a guy in the crew named Don Carson. Don Carson was a great personality. He uh, He was one of the best guys in the dressing room you could ever have in your territory. And I told Don, I went to Don personally because I knew his relationship with Nick. And I said, Don, I really want you to be nice to George. (laughs) <laughs> the night george came and he comes in the dressing room and i watch i sit there with my back turned and i kind of paying attention to where he's going and he went like most wrestlers around the dressing room shaking hands and introducing himself and uh when he got to don he says uh he said oh don don good to see you good to see you. he goes how y'all doing and don said uh, we're eating george <laughs> meaning, meaning, you know we're not starving like you guys are over there in we're eating george and uh, george just kind of put his head down and he went walking on i was like oh my goodness donna you know but uh george george really was the demise of this of his father. yeah you know, really- i heard so and I'll, I'll tell you how i know
0: a little bit about the inside of that um my ex-wife was uh A a lady wrestler for Nicholas. And uh, and in fact, I believe you knew her tag team partner, Anne Jeanette. Right. Yeah. And I I know for sure that you knew her ex-husband, David Novak from the Bounty Hunters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Novak's, yeah. Yeah. Um, Just as a, a little side note here, David Novak's son was my stepson for 16 years so um and he looks just like him ron if you ever see him he looks just like him so now i brought that up to ask you this how important even in the grand scheme of it all how important was goulas's presence there was he a catharsis for people to work off of? Was he somebody that you could legitimately get a start with and then move on from him? Or was he a complete waste?
1: Well, he had certain certain guys guys that that he serve a purpose. He had certain guys that he really liked. My brother worked there a lot and I never worked from in the Nashville territory ever. My entire career. I worked Memphis for Jared, uh, for one year in 1975. Uh, but, uh, my brother liked Nick. He was one of the few guys that liked Nick. And, and he said, Nick was always nice to me, Ron. And Nick took care of me. And I said, yeah, but how did he take care of the other boys, Rob? You know, well, I didn't ask what yet they made, you know, he said. But, uh, you know, they, but I knew he, Nick had certain guys that he really liked. Uh, Jackie Fargo. Jackie Fargo. He's a huge Jackie Fargo fan. Yeah. Uh, uh, Lynn Rossi. Lynn Rossi is an old timer back in the day. Uh, He was a huge Lynn Rossi fan. Lynn had a great body. uh, uh, You know, and he used those guys. They worked specifically on Nick's side of the territory. They never worked the opposite side of the territory because they wouldn't have got used as good as they were getting used by Nick. But Mm -hmm. most of their guys that worked for Nick starved. I mean they, they were really, really hungry. Uh, yeah. They had more Mexicans working that territory in the 30s and 40s and 50s. They had at one time 150 guys working that Tennessee territory. Yeah. And I heard probably of that. 50 of them were, were Mexican boys that uh they didn't pay anything too hardly. It was it was really terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
0: I mean uh, his reputation really precedes him. Mike, I know you got a couple of questions. So I'm going to let you have this one. Then I'm going to shoot it over to Dan.
2: I was thinking of uh, Pensacola wrestling. And I remember um, from the corridors of my me- wrestling memories, the Rat Patrol of, um, I believe it was Tonga Kid, Brad Armstrong, or maybe it was Scott Armstrong, mm. and uh, yeah. jo- Johnny Rich. Yeah. So, so I mean, talk about a baby face trio. Um, but I was going to ask you, uh, Ron, to me, The pro wrestling scene, as far as my own lifetime, would be 1983 is when everything peaked. That would be the greatest year for professional wrestling for everybody in the United States, at least, and probably in Japan, too. And then when you had things like Vince McMahon sticking his claws into other people's promotions and and the competition and everything that came with that, I think things actually declined before even the first WrestleMania. To me... 1983 with, with your area, Continental, Mid-Atlantic, Georgia, Florida, world-class, AWA. That was the glory period for wrestling. As someone who kind of lived through the 80s wrestling scene from the inside, can you tell us uh, from your own perspective the vibe, the feel as, as McMahon, Vince McMahon Jr., was getting so competitive and so cutthroat with all the people that his father made those uh, handshake agreements with and and those that that same hand that shook those hands spawned this this monster of a promoter who stabbed everybody in the back. Can you discuss some of that for us?
1: Oh yeah, uh, and you're right. '83 was the biggest year Continental ever had. Uh, it was actually southeastern. Still, we turned it into Continental in '85, but that was the biggest year. Uh, I worked in Japan in '83 uh, with the Funk's. A great tour with uh, Baba and the Funk's. Uh, Mill mascaras and those, those, uh, I mean, uh, uh, wrestling was on fire back in uh, probably the early 80s and, uh, and specifically around 83. That's when we worked the angle I talked about with Bob Armstrong. The December of 82, 83 was a monster year for us. And uh, so, uh, and then when Vince, when I was gone, honestly, guys. I, I left the business in 88. I retired in 88. After I finished with Continental and sold out, I started a company in Knoxville called USA Wrestling. I ran it for six months. I sold it to the same people that bought Continental from me, and I went into hockey. I don't know if y'all are aware of that. Oh, yeah. I went into hockey for, for, for five years. I, I was in hockey. Uh, Interesting. But, uh, but uh, you know, Vince just Vince obliterated the business. Vince killed wrestling. Yeah, you know, and, uh, because of greed. It was all because of greed. You know, I mean, uh, and you know what was really funny? In 1985, I had a company in Houston, Texas, that was putting my television program, Continental, in the, in the Middle East. Uh, we were in uh, five different countries in the Middle East. With yeah. And they came to me and said, Ron, we've got a connection in New York. We want you to come to NBC and talk to them about the national show, a national show. And uh, I went there and uh, I went to the NBC, talked to him. Uh, and, and when I left there, my thought was, if I do this, what's going to happen to me in this business? Uh, you know, w- am I going to be able to keep my friends in the NWA uh, uh, out and, uh, you know, and so when Vince got that opportunity I, I and what I would have done if I had taken that show is I would have put everybody's territory, their top guys on that television. I would have made it the greatest wrestling product in the history of wrestling. If wrestling would have been today twice what it was in 83 instead of half of what it was in 83. You know, uh, it just what he did is he murdered it. He murdered it and he did it for greed. Ron, were you
0: part of uh, of Greg and Vern Gagne's USA Pro group? Yes. When they started, okay, you were so you were part yeah. of that when yeah when they they, they see, for people who don't know what Ron and I are referring to, uh, Greg Gagne and Vern Gagne got together with uh, three or four other promoters and formed this super fed. It was called USA USA Pro Wrestling.
2: Pro Wrestling USA, to be exact. Pro Wrestling
0: USA. Thank you, Mikey. And it, on paper, it seemed like an amazing idea. But then something happened that always happens in wrestling. And Ron knows where I'm going with this. Promoters' egos go unchecked. They get out of control. Well, I want my guys to do this. No, I want my guys to do this. Blah, 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 blah. Before you know it, this super fed becomes super fed up. They all break away. They go on to their own little territories again. Never to be seen from again because Vince and his deep pockets and fat wallet buy everybody up. Now you've got one federation across America. Fast forward now all these years later. You've got one wrestling group that really isn't wrestling, Ron. And I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to tell you what I think. And you can tell me I'm full of shit. Um, but I think that Vince McMahon doesn't like wrestling. I think <laughs> Vince McMahon's father loved wrestling. But I don't think his son liked wrestling whatsoever.
1: Uh, well, I... Uh- I tell you what, I don't think he he knows wrestling. You know, I mean, uh, I, I, I think his product, an argument for me, brother. His product is uh, so far removed from southern wrestling that uh it that I, you can't recognize it. And uh you know, having grown up in the south and uh, and watched how it was done there, uh I can't watch his product. I haven't watched a WWE show in 20 20, 20 years. Uh, I, not, I don't watch wrestling nothing. anymore. I don't watch wrestling anymore. Yeah, I don't see any of it that I really uh, could get my sink my teeth into anymore. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it was a real bad situation. And uh, yeah. I love I love senior. I love Vince Senior. I worked for him in the Garden. I worked for him in Philadelphia. Right. Uh, he was bringing us out of Florida uh, back in the day in the seventies, early seventies, working working yeah. uh, Madison Square Garden and some of those major sure. arenas and uh you know he's a good guy his son uh doesn't really uh, and i don't i believe you're probably right i don't think he really likes the sport no i don't, I don't think he, he does i he really don't think it, he does that's for sure he has no well you
0: no. Know, you're at ron i'm gonna tell you what brother you're you are spot on when you say he doesn't respect it every chance that man gets to shit on this product he does and how he's making money I think it's just because he's got a bunch of, you know, people that are so invested financially in his product that they're afraid to pull out, you know. Um, It's like being with a real hot girl that you like, you know. You want to give her some, and once you're there, you don't want to pull out. But eventually, (laughs) you're going to have (laughs) to. Dan, rescue right. me off the <laughs> Well, it's
3: it's actually funny, Angelo, because uh, but you,
0: you, you know I'm you tra- right
3: though. You know what I mean? You, you are, and I think it's important actually to take this moment. You, you talk about being with a uh, being with a pretty girl, and uh, yes. you know that that kind Man, of relationship. Let's have oh, a word
0: for our sponsors.
3: Any anybody knows that that you're going to be with a pretty girl, you got to be presentable, and in that case, then you can look for the. Uh, Tools of the trade from our sponsor, our our friends at Manscaped.com, for all your manscaping needs, for those out there who uh, want to impress these pretty girls that Angelo's talking about, or maybe get involved and uh, show off a little bit as we get uh, into the warmer weather. You want that feeling of of clean that our friends at Manscaped.com with the Lawnmower 3.0 and the new promo pack they have, where it includes the uh, Manscaped underwear and the... Wonderful freshness of your ball spray and Manscape trimmers for yes, all your needs there. You can use the promo code Wrestling Future for 20% off and free shipping on any of their promo packages for this Manscaped.com and Wrestling with the Future.
0: And I'll tell you what, you know, we got just a guy tonight to, to help us promote this product. This will definitely put you in a Tennessee stud
1: state of mind. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah, boy. Well, you know, this is the first time, this is my first uh, my first uh, 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 running into Manscaped, gentlemen. I, this is fairly new to me, and uh, but it might be something I could utilize. You know, I'm not saying I... Ron, I uh, can get you a free... Brother, I can get you a free starter kit. <laughs> well, we might they talk like us.
0: when it shows over. <laughs> they like it. Yes, sir. Well, i tell you what, you know... Um, we already, we know Ron Fuller is a wrestler, promoter, entrepreneur, you know, he's a, he's a, a manager, he's the, the head of this stud stable, the, all this stuff, but there's something else Ron Fuller is, he is now a published author, now, I want to tell everybody, it's not a wrestling book, but it's a damn good book, if you ever get a chance to, to read it, I want everybody to Uh, To order this book, uh, you can get it uh, on Ron's website. Uh, It's available. uh, It's called Brutus. Now, Ron, where did the story for Brutus come from? Let's talk a little bit about this without giving the book away because I want people to buy it. But it's not, you know, you and I spoke about it. It's really not a wrestling story.
1: Oh, no. No, it's got nothing to do with wrestling and, uh, right. it's a dream. It came from a dream. I had a dream one night, I dreamed all night about a lion and I woke up the next day and I, I got up and I said, I've never written anything, but I'm going to write a book about this dream. And, uh, so that's basically what I did. It sat in the drawer for 20 years after I wrote it and, uh, didn't do anything with it. And then a couple of years ago, I dug it out and I got to really looking at what was there and, uh, and uh, and I, I went ahead and finished a book that I should have finished 20 years ago, and it's basically a story about the a lion, uh, an African man-eating lion that gets shipped mistakenly to a zoo in Knoxville, Tennessee, and that lion escapes into the Smoky Mountains National Park, and uh, when that happens, all hell breaks loose. Obviously, <laughs> and uh, it's it's a uh, I'm pretty proud of it. I spent two years writing it, and uh, yep. it's a. Uh, it's uh, it was an experience for me, and uh, and I, and I'm getting a lot of great reviews. Um, and I hope people it like really it. Really is
0: a, it really? It's a great read, and you know, I don't know if um, you know, if people really understand that. What here's what I liked about it, and I'll just tell you straight up: I love the simplicity of it. I love that it's a straightforward book. You don't have to go crazy trying to figure anything out. It's just you know. You know, simple, everyday language. You know, you don't have to go nuts trying to... There are a lot of books that you can go crazy trying to figure out what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, this is, huh? this book is, like I said, fairly straightforward. You know, it's a simple read. It's a good read. It's a very easy read. The book is called Brutus. I want people to check this out. Again, it's available on uh, ronfuller.com. I'm sure you can find it on the... Uh, Uh, Also available on the uh, Tennessee
1: Studcast, the links. The TN Stud, you can get it on TN Stud. It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. It's, uh, you know, you can get, uh, uh, you can get it there. uh, And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a cross. This book's a little bit of a cross between Deliverance and Jaws. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's got a little bit of that Deliverance in it, and it's got some Jaws in it, except they're not Shark Jaws. You know, so. Yeah, you know, when I read the, the, the book, I thought to myself, this
0: reminds me of my marriage. You know, <laughs> the lion got out of the zoo and uh, prowled the Smoky Mountains, and there I met her.
1: <laughs>
0: and then I got the hell out of Tennessee and went back to New Jersey. Thank you, God. <laughs> no, actually, I, you know, I met a lot of interesting characters. I met, um, I met some really interesting characters in Knoxville. There was a guy I met there, Ron. He was a promote, called himself a promoter. A guy named Terry Landell. I don't know if you know oh. this guy. Do you know who I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> oh, this guy is a character. First of all, that just so people that, that are listening understand, no relation to the late Buddy Landell. Um, I believe at some point. He tried to pass his, himself off as a kayfabe brother, some something along those lines. Ron, correct me if I'm wrong on that.
1: Yeah, I think he, he would like to tie himself into somebody that's legitimate, you know. But uh, he's a joke. Yeah. You know, in in that part of the country, he's a joke. He's one of those guys that that uh, wanted to be in the wrestling business and uh, and really believed he was in the wrestling business. And yeah. He just is, uh He's 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 as bad as Vince, but in a different way. Yeah. He just, uh, um. Uh, I don't have many good things to say about Terry Landell. Oh, I don't either. Uh, you know, I believe his, uh,
0: you know, I'm not going to call him out, but uh, I believe that if you run across Terry quote Terry Landell unquote, you'll never forget him. He's a uh, you know, he's a real piece of shit. He's a scumbag. So uh- let's just call him out. <laughs> I'm not going to mince words about it. I'm a simple guy. Um, you know, he's a he's a used car salesman. Take that for what it's worth.
2: Is that the, like the like car? Corn- I'll give Is you the, the last
1: round of questions, brother.
2: Well, I just I think that's the same guy that Cornette pulled a gun on. Am I right? Yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. ran oh, him Cornette's over. that
1: has got a great story about Buddy Landell. It's a classic.
2: Yeah, you know, he ran him
1: over with his car. Yeah, he tried to run him over with his car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You know, I think I think we gotta we gotta let the Tennessee uh, stud get back to his girlfriend. I think she might need a little stud time. From from uh, I understand, still the Tennessee stud there, Ron. But oh, what a man. pleasure! But I did want to I did want to make sure that we mentioned that not only do you have the book Brutus available, I saw on your website a collection of five DVDs that for the young wrestling fans that have never experienced. Uh, Southeastern Wrestling, Fuller, Fuller & Golden versus The Armstrongs, all those exciting type of matches, I want you to consider purchasing those DVDs from uh, Ron Fuller's website. And just so that people know that those type of classic wrestling matches, they're not the homogenized stuff you'll see on the WWE Network, where they extract all the offensive parts, or so they extract all the music. This is the real deal, folks. So if if you want to see wrestling the way it ought to be and the way it used to be, and hopefully that 12-year-old kid is out there listening to this show yes. and plotting and pointing the return of real pro wrestling 20 years in the future, uh, check out Ron Fuller's DVD collection.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, that's a TN stud. That's my website. Got all kinds of things on there. And, uh, you know, and I do the I do a, a weekly podcast. Uh, I call it Studcast. Uh, Yep. got a pretty darn good audience been on for three years in fact i do my tomorrow i'm doing the third year's episode 156 and and that's a oh, whole that's story of my family starts with roy comes all the way through to my dad and uh i'm in 1976 and uh, i'm working my way it'll be another seven years before i get through southeastern and continental but well, uh
0: what, it, that's beautiful so tomorrow you're celebrating three years on the air that's it. Three years of uh, three years of stud cast. And, uh, well, tomorrow I'm celebrating sixty-two years. Oh,
1: walking around this
0: joint. Yeah, sixty-two tomorrow. Congratulations. And yeah, I very, told you on the phone. I said you're my birthday present.
1: <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad I am.
0: If well, I'll tell you what. I super would love stud to stud have
1: stud, you. I yeah, do a super stud cast too. I I don't just do the one. I do a three-hour, once-a-month Super Studcast. Yeah. I, know Terry Funk, uh, Stan Hansen. Uh, uh, I do an Andre, a Ron Wright, uh, Bob Armstrong, uh, uh, the Assassin. Uh, it's just a cornet. I mean, it's just a litany of guys that I know. Oh, my and God, We just sit yeah, and sure. talk for three hours and tell old stories, kind of like we've done here today. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh you know it's you know Ron. One of the things that we we pride ourselves
0: on this show, and and I hope you've noticed that we don't talk an awful lot about wrestling. We talk about the human stories, the about the people, and that's what we love to do here. We love talking about the people. You're a guy that I would love to have back. I would love to have you back if, uh, and I know your schedule is like crazy. Where you got all this stuff going on, um. Because we planned this, how long ago did we plan this? Probably six weeks, at least six weeks. I was going to say probably a month and like two months ago, maybe. I, I think it was, it was actually early. It was about two well, and, if, and a half months. If we, yeah. If we ask Ron now, we might be good to go for like October.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd be glad to come back, guys. You know, I ah, I like talking wrestling. It's uh it's a, uh, it's, it's 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 what I've done all my yeah. life. Seems like so. You know? well, I'll tell you what we like you here, man. We like um, you here. Uh, so yeah, y'all go, go, go. Just get in touch with me and uh, let's let's do something in October. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Good. Well, I'll tell you what, Dan. Yes. Final
0: uh, final round for Ron, before we let him go.
3: Well, I mean, really, no. Uh, I guess the 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 last thought I could get from you is a question I ask all our talent. And that's the the question. Eddie Graham used to say, "Everybody in wrestling has a first love and a true love." Who was your favorite opponent? Who did you love working with the most through your career?
1: Oh man, I worked with so many people. Uh, Mongolian Stomper, Archie.
0: There you Archie. Go. Archie oh yeah, Archie going. Yeah, holy. I wow. uh,
1: really loved working with Stomper. He was kind of stiff. Uh, he was. Uh, he he. I just liked his style. And uh, what a great guy, too, at the same time. I mean, uh, and he worked for me for many years in my company. He was a bona fide badass. And, uh, and yeah, he boy. was one of those guys, when you brought him in your territory, he got over the first night. It, <laughs> yeah. It didn't, take, it didn't take very long. So, yeah, I really like working with Archie. Aren't you I, happy I that take- I'm old
0: enough I remember oh. Archie Goldie? <laughs> <laughs> I got to have. Do. I more. know. I, I remember Archie Goldie. No shit. Yeah, Brother, I'll tell you what. I gotta have you back. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my best to uh, to your to your other half there. I, I won't call her out on the air, but she's. I tell you what, she's amazing to get you on the uh, on the Skype with us tonight. We almost didn't think this was going to happen, folks. But Ron's got a little secret weapon there. We're not going to we're not going to let the cat out of the bag. <laughs>
1: All right, guys, I appreciate you on. I've been it. Thank you, I, thank it. you my very friend.
0: Nice. I'll touch base with you in a couple of days. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. All. Appreciate thank it. You. Thank you all
1: very much. Thank you. Good
0: night. Night. The Tennessee stud, Ron. I'll tell you what, great guy. Great, great guy. Mm-hmm. Dan, what do you think, kid? Everything you expected?
3: Oh, absolutely. And more. I mean, like I said, you know, I, I got into the business as a wrestler, as a historian with my my column. And, and those are the kind of stories that you look for. I mean, that oh God. that is an insight that, and it's unfortunate, We you know, we mentioned several big names that we've lost recently. You know, that's the kind of stories you have to tell now because you, you're not going to get to hear them 10 years from now. And, and, and
0: that's why we do what we do. And we, we keep telling people, we don't talk wrestling. We talk people. Exactly. This is a wrestling show about people. You know, the personality. We're, we're, we're going to have, hopefully, hopefully, we're going to have Dominic DeNucci. I would love to have Dominic on. We we confirmed it, but then he's like, he's having second. We don't really know what's going on yet. But keep your fingers crossed because we're trying to get Dominic DiNucci on. Um. You know, th- these guys, there's a very few left are all leaving us, you know? Yeah. I want that uh, that history preserved. We got to, Mikey, we got to preserve that history.
2: Well, you know, the thing is, Angelo, the show is called Wrestling with the Future. And it's my belief, and this might sound like grandstanding or hyperbole, but it's my belief that the true pro wrestling fan base has got to come together and save the sport from the pretenders that are in the ring right now. Uh, exactly. Dan has Dan has mentioned in his columns. I've mentioned in my pro wrestling rants that the Kenny Omegas, the Velveteen Joey's, that pollute and stink up our rings with their theatrics and their parodies stick They are not yep. living. They're not living in the footsteps of Tully Blanchard and Bret Hart and Buddy Rogers yeah, and Bruno Sammartino. So it's up to the fans that are more intelligent, more discerning. Uh, fans like my friend in Texas, Jay Baca, who does his own wrestling podcast and is a big right. supporter of me on Twitter. It's up to us to reclaim the sport from the from the pretenders that are in this ring and are on our televisions. Yeah, and if, if we need guys like Ron Fuller to to do a podcast, so that that twelve year old kid in the suburbs or the city or or wherever he's at, it doesn't have to be a Tony Khan silver spoon kid. Pro wrestling. Yeah by its nature is a less expensive uh, production to put on than a lot of things because you basically need a ring and about 20 guys to do a good show in a venue. Yeah. So so my hope is that this show not just preserves the past, but lays a foundation to salvage this sport for the future. That's my hope. Well said, Dan.
3: Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't argue with that. I know, it sounds campy, but in order to wrestle with the future, you have to embrace the past, and it's exactly. it's that that mentality. And the more you reach the audience, and you see that with your your Jim Cornettes and your Eric Bischoffs, and a lot of these, you know, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the stud cast, and all these, you know, the 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 narrative of the past. Because, like Mikey said, I mean, a lot of people don't realize the the peak financial peak of wrestling was pre-wrestlemania and even in the era when you know the the hulkamania era and then the attitude era and the money night wars when when you were having oh the raw drew an eight point rating like eight million people well congratulations in the territory days you had 30 million people watching wrestling at at any given moment you know um i mean each 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 Promotion was pulling in two, three, five million people a week. Sure. So you figure how many territories there were 30, 40, 50 million people every right. week watching wrestling. Here we are thinking eight million. No, it's it's you have to. get
0: they the break three hundred thousand people and they're ready to celebrate. Okay, let's exactly. be honest about exactly. it. Exactly. Well, that's there's like, no millions uh, involved anymore. We're talking about hundreds of thousands.
3: Well, and that's okay? the thing. Like they just had Nobody's the uh,
0: broken a million in months. Right, literally they, they just, months.
3: They, they just, haven't
0: broke the million mark in four months. Right, okay? and
3: they just released the numbers. Uh, NXT and 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 AEW doing their joint paper uh, joint, excuse me, competing pay per views with yeah. Fighter Fest and then the Great America, uh, uh, excuse me, the the uh, Great American Bash. Yeah. and this lat just yesterday, NXT won the final night with I think it was like seven hundred and fifty one thousand. Seven hundred thousand oh wins wins the rating war. You know, there was a point when when a, a a bad a bad NWA cast if they if they had six million it was a, it was an off weekend, you
0: know. Yeah, I mean that that that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you're they're ready to celebrate, right? With, with numbers like that, that's not a celebration. Well, they should be
2: ashamed of themselves.
1: Yeah. Well, well, it's, jump like, in here.
2: it's like Cornette says, the biggest marks are in the ring now. And when you got when you got guys, Mike, I've said that before. Right, when you got guys like um, the New Day guy, the uh, the shortest one, um, who is so he's he's in the dressing room watching Batista wrestle at WrestleMania, and he's flexing and posing to Batista's theme song. And you've got one of the guys is actually pretty good. Dax Harwood today is twittering about he's with AEW now. And he's twittering about how he's watching both AEW and C, and his fans. We should be happy. M- this is a guy who's in the revival who's telling us that he's watching the company that he just left because they wouldn't yeah. promote him and they wanted to put him in a suspenders and a bow tie. And I tweeted back to him. I said, hey, hey, Dax, aren't you a wrestler, not a fan? <laughs> and someone yeah, right? responded to me. No, responded they don't understand. To me. Right. Somebody responded to Speaking me.
0: Speaking of uh, right. bringing people back. Can somebody make sense of um, bringing back Heath Slater? Can or am I missing something here?
3: Uh, that was a f-
0: like they, a pro- they get rid of him for a reason.
3: He, he, well, they he was part of the like budget. Like he can't cuts.
0: wrestle. Like he's got no personality. Like he can't cut a promo. Like he's really not that, no, I, I, that much I, to he, look at.
3: Like can I think it, I mean he's not, he's not he's him back here. No, he's not much. i shut up
0: now, Dan. Go ahead.
3: No, you're fine. Heath Slater's <laughs> not much physically, but he is. A, he is a talented performer. He's just one of those guys that's never really meant to get above the curtain jerker position. He's.
0: They, why he, did he, they he, bring it, him back for what well,
3: reason? They they did that as a favor to their champion. Uh, they. The 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 obviously that was his goodbye because you know it, it was very they cut all these people during an outbreak. And it not everybody got their got their their moment in the sun and he he he'd been with the company for years and his best friend is happens years, to I be heard. the current champion. So they did that as a favor to the champion. Now I think it's gonna be interesting because the second his non-compete clause is up, he's going to TNA. And at least that's the rumor
0: anyway. And why TNA?
3: The the uh his former tag partners there and they've been hyped. So he's
0: going to go to a group that's barely existent at the, at the moment.
3: Well, it's got it's got to be better than being unemployed. I mean, I don't know.
0: Well, go to if you're going to, to have that mentality, go to AEW and make some money while you're doing it.
3: Well, AEW is being they're they're not you know they're they're got to be real careful not. Go- yeah, Mikey, go ahead. Mikey's you're, on you're mute. You're, you're muted. Okay, guess not. Um, but uh, AEW's—they're not—they're not trying to sign every WWE guy because that was WCW's problem: was they would yeah. sign these mid Carters and try and push them, and it just didn't work.
0: Yeah. Well, the, you know, like I said, Dan, i, I don't understand the—the the sense. Of, now, what are they going to do? They're going to—they're going to bring him back again? You think the done with him was a one-off deal?
3: Yeah, that was—that was a one-off. That was his goodbye. Like I said, right. that was a favorite of the champ. And and that's it.
0: Just to give him some closure.
3: Yeah, ahead, I mean, he's been with the company for over ten years. Fourteen so. years. Yeah, <laughs> he might, might might as well give him something.
2: I'm going to take the opposite point of view, guys. I actually thought that that was a good segment. I, I've I've been a low key Keith Slater fan and a three three and three man band fan for a while. Oh, And I.
3: Th- oh, I'm sorry, Mike. I was going to say don't, don't don't get me wrong. I I agreed. I thought it was a good segment, but. It doesn't it doesn't change the fact that it was a one-off.
2: Well, let's put it this way: um, with with wrestling, with WWE, with any wrestling company, these guys in theory are free agents. In theory, they they can come and go as they please. We all know that that's not true in practice. Mm-hmm. But right. yeah, what I thought what I thought was kind of a waste was that they didn't get a better match out of it. They didn't get any meat off the bone. For instance. Randy Orton and Christian could have had some meat on the bone. Well, Why not? let's
0: let's not hold on, Mikey. I gotta I gotta stop you there. That's a whole nother that's a whole nother dynamic. When you're talking about Heath Slater, understand something: he's there for Phil. He's only there for Phil. All right, you, they, yeah. they have no intention, at least in my estimation, from what I saw. They have absolutely no intention of using him for anything substantial. Like Danny said, this was a, a one-off. This was a, a final bow, a curtain call. This was his, you know, doing the favor for a guy on the way out, whatever the case may be. But they let him go. And we need to understand something. They let him go for a reason. He just doesn't have it. Can he work? Yeah, he can work. He's okay for a preliminary guy. But he's not a main eventer. He's not even a middle carter. He's a curtain jerker. And that's all he's ever intended to be. The problem they made was trying to create this character for him that he's clearly not. He's a young, good-looking, southern guy. Very southern. Very much... You know the
2: accent,
0: the attitude. He's this guy from the south,
2: man. And that's that's why Vince won't ever push him because he is southern. And, they, and-
0: if they were smart, they could have used that to push him. Yeah, but Make they're not smart. The- right. I'll give you case in point, time after time, we've seen it. Um, let's say Hillbilly Jim. Remember him? Yeah. Um, uh, Uncle Elmer. Remember him? <laughs> okay. I can go on. There, we, you know, look, pretty Joe Floyd or whatever. What was his name, Dan? Pretty Joe Floyd, right? Uh, Freddie, Freddie, Freddie Joe Floyd. Tracy's yeah, mother Joe Floyd. yeah there, you Joe Floyd. there you go. There you go. The point I'm, I'm trying to make is, yeah, I know Vince doesn't like Southern guys, but he's a smart businessman. He knows how to make money. Well, he used to. I'll, I'm going to clarify something, folks. He used to be a smart businessman, and he used to know how to make money. He's bleeding money out the pockets right now, okay? Um, Dan, my, tell me if I'm, uh, if I'm in, the, in the ballpark here. I mean, they could do something with guys like that, but they choose not to. Why?
3: Yeah, outside of Texas, they don't push Southern talent, and... That's that's a deep seated problem. Now you see in NXT there are some Southern stars that have come up, but then again, no. NXT is the, the continuously the best program WWE has and also the only one Vince McMahon has nothing to do with.
0: Um Yeah, and by the way, NXT is based in the South. Um hello yeah. Florida, Florida, you don't get any southern more southern than Florida.
2: It's 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 even it's like literally the
0: most southern place in America.
2: It's, it's an hour and a half south of me. Yeah. I, guess, I guess my thought, guys, continues to be everybody, myself included. We blame Vince McMahon Jr. for everything that's wrong with WWE creatively. It I, it's his company. It's I, I guess my company. question, I, I hear you, but my question is, does the guy have early onset Alzheimer's? Does the guy have early onset? I don't
0: know if, we, if clinically he has onset Alzheimer's. I could tell you he's out of his fucking mind.
2: Well, I, I'm, not, I'm trying to give him uh, the thought oh, that maybe... You know, does, uh,
0: glean from that what you will. Glean from that what you will. He looks like a deer in the headlights, okay? My when point he never is,
2: did. Does, does Vince McMahon, who is... Uh, I don't know if he's in his mid-70s, late-70s, but... He's 75. Is, okay, so, so the point is this. I'm not trying to pick on anyone who's a senior citizen at all, but we all get older, and we all have... Um, Problems with aging to different levels and my f- feeling it's no offense to Vince or anyone else who's older. It's that Vince is getting older and he's having problems with his mind. And, and that's as politely as I can say it to,
0: to accept the reality of the situation. Have a meeting with his family and say, you know, I think maybe I should step down.
2: What did I say before? She's he's, he's got too much too much pride, too much ego,
0: pride. I and same. I think Dan and I had this conversation. I don't know if, if you were on the show that night, Mike, but Dan and I had this conversation. You know, all I would I would love for all he has to do to make me happy. It's as simple as this. All he has to do walk away. Just walk away.
2: Right. They, they did, right? They did. They did that as a storyline five or six years ago. Triple H came into the ring and told Vince that he was done, and blah blah blah. So they, they, it's like it's like two years ago in December of eighteen. The McMahon foursome came into the ring and told us that we were in charge. Remember that? And and nothing, yeah. nothing changed. So yeah, we're gonna listen to the, Not
3: only, not only did nothing change, but it, the product got worse
0: well understand the difference between a work angle and a real angle okay if you see it on television trust me folks it's a work right it's a work the will never they will never ever ever tip their hat on when a camera is rolling you'll never see it you'll never hear it Not on television. They'll never do business
2: on TV. That's why I say the way Vince works. The the shows like this are important because you know we're not going to sit here. To me, what's great about Wrestling with the Future podcast is we're not analyzing every Monday Night Raw. Digging at something, looking for something interesting to talk about. There's and nothing interesting never to talk will. about.
0: Not, no, we'll never do it,
2: right? What, what the fans need to do is that some 12 year old kid who loves pro wrestling has to go back to the old wrestling magazines he finds on Craigslist, or his uncle's got a stash of old wrestling magazines. He's got to dig through YouTube, watch the old South East wrestling with the Fullers, watch the old World Class wrestling with the Von Erics and the Freebirds, yeah. and hopefully, what we're doing is providing a starting point. For some young wrestling fan to build his or her own promotion that respects the integrity of what professional wrestling used to be and still should be and yeah. can be again, we can't we can't watch uh, we can't watch the quote modern product quote of the last ten or fifteen years and think that that is suitable for, for to sustain this sport. Like I've said, prof- professional wrestling since about 2014 at the at the least. It's been like the steroid era of baseball. It's a it's an era that's disgraceful. It's pathetic, and and at least we're man enough to admit it and tell people about it. We're, we're, I'm not going to be like, um, say, a guy like JD from New York who screams and hollers about how bad the WWE show is, well, he oh, shit, the, well, don't, he, don't but look, look, he never tells Please don't me He never tells he never tells <laughs> his audience to stop watching. When I was doing the pro wrestling rants, I said, find something better to do with your time. Watch old wrestling. Watch uh, alternative wrestling. Watch Japanese stuff if you have to. He's got a problem. He's not that smart. Dan, go ahead.
3: No, I, I completely agree with Mikey. And, I mean, if we're going to have any kind of final thoughts, I think it's it's that it's unfortunate. We Mikey brought it up a, a couple shows ago where – there is a section of the wrestling audience that's waiting for Vince McMahon to die and see what happens there. I actually think, really, to get back to where we are, wrestling as a whole has to die. AEW and WWE, it- these,
0: you know some of these what? companies that- are going to have to you.
3: fold. I mean, Thank even you. now... That's
0: exactly what has to happen, Dan. Right, even it now. has to There has to be... I'm sorry with people like me they say this or not, but... There has to be a cleansing, a purging. There has to be a completely blank slate. Wrestling has to take a giant shit and then flush the toilet and let's see what we got left. Right. Start with some fresh water. That's the start. The second thing you do is you get rid of JD from NY.
2: Well, I just I just mentioned him as an example. And look, my friend, he's got nothing.
0: Uh, Here's the problem with this guy. There are the problem with that. And I'm sure he's a nice guy off camera. Okay, here's the problem I have. I got two issues with him. Number one, he does the same thing every fucking day. Okay, hollers and hollers and hollers. That's the first problem I got. The second problem I have is there are idiots that are watching this guy's channel, shooting his numbers through the roof. To watch him holler. Now you might see that from me because I stopped smoking, okay. And as Dan has already noticed, I've been increasingly more vocal tonight since Mister Fuller has left. Because I'm usually a very quiet, shy, unassuming guy. Oh yeah, like i got my coke, yeah. in my yeah. cigarette. Very
2: quiet. Yeah, unassuming. Exactly. <laughs> right, and aren't I, Dan? That's, thank you. <laughs> not, not in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break, Jess. Give me a break, right? Jess. Right.
0: But here's the thing, though. Uh, uh, you know, the, what bothers me is I call it the cornet effect. Okay. People love cornet. He doesn't say anything. He hollers. He rants and hollers. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing he said for the last 15 20 years in a row. Mm-hmm. I hate this, and I hate that, and that needs to change, and this needs to change, and I can do it better, and blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what? Go ahead. Put your fucking
2: money where your mouth is, asshole. Here's, here's the thing I would say, Angelo. I think, I think there's a certain escapism that we all have for pro wrestling, at least I do. Yeah. It's a safety zone. It's a place to go where real-life troubles or real-life yeah, relationships right. with women are not involved and we can put on a wrestling t shirt and we can hide into the sanctity of our visions of wrestling past. Mm-hmm. And that's great. But when wrestling turns its back on you, when they start selling the, the shows to the Saudi Arabian government, yeah, and I got when a problem they start that Mikey Me too, and so when they start doing hypocritical things like saying they're promoting women's wrestling but only if the Prince of Saudi Arabia allows for it, that's when I say, you know what, I'm not going to support this program as much as as I used to. Like I said before, guys, probably 2007, I spent more money on WWE action figures than I should have, but 2020, I'm not spending much money on WWE at all.
0: Well, and I'm sure your bank account is grateful for that you know I mean yeah, what, I, is there yeah. to, what is there to spend there's nothing out
2: there there's no why would I want to buy a Drew McIntyre t-shirt he's just another yeah. I mean um, exactly. and, and he, here's the thing also guys and I'll be this is kind of cutting it close to the bone I do think that when you're a male age 13 to 25 that's probably when your peak years of being a wrestling fan really should be you know what yeah. I mean? Because we all get older, we do things with our own lives. But if I were a male thirteen to twenty five now, I don't know if I would watch pro wrestling or at least WWE because I don't know if I'd be impressed by what I was seeing.
0: No, you know why? You know young males thirteen to twenty five they're on the internet watching porn.
2: <laughs> well, that's why and they, have, not, like
0: a- and they don't have to pay nine ninety five a month for it either.
2: That's that's why they have a, a plethora of, of of Alexa Bliss, Liv Morgan's, etc. Because you know I-
0: what, And they can have them.
2: On that uh, note,
0: on that note, um, then we are going to say good night to everyone. But we have some amazing guests coming up. Yes, sir. So what do we got coming up? We have uh, let's see. Of course, today was Ron Fuller. We've got next week. Oh my goodness, we got some good stuff coming up next week. We've got Andrew Anderson coming up, I believe, on Tuesday. Am I right?
3: The fourteenth, yes, sir.
0: So then we got. Then we have on the sixteenth. I believe we have John Arezzi. Tell me if I'm.
3: John Arezzi's the sixteenth, yes.
0: Yeah, John. We got uh, remembering the territories on the twenty first. Baby doll yes. comes back on the twenty third. And. I believe we have, um, on the 28th, I am looking for this one. This is the death and replacement of Paul McCartney with Mike Williams from the stage of play and the most controversial man in pro wrestling, Mr. Warmth himself, Vince Russo.
3: There you go.
0: Okay. People you behave yourself that night, Dan, please. Please behave yourself that night.
3: Oh, I will. I'm actually off of that off that broadcast, Mike. Oh, Mikey, I thought
0: you wanted to. Oh, okay. I, oh,
3: no. I, I would. I would love the chance, but the 28th happens to fall on my birthday, so I'm going to use oh, my that's birthday. Right.
0: Okay. I'm going yep. to
3: enjoy my birthday to avoid Good for being. You. Yeah, I don't. I don't. <laughs> you know my opinion. I. I may. Maybe. Maybe I'm not the best. Co-pan, uh, co-host, if you're going to have Vince Russo on the show,
0: well, um, I'm sure Mikey will do a an admirable job of of uh, we, taking your place that night. Right, well,
2: it'll, it'll be it'll be fun, and Vince Russo and I have a bond. I was on the Vince Russo show uh, two and a half years ago, which actually got my profile much higher in the wrestling community and I, I dare say that because of the exposure from the Vince Russo show, that's how Angelo got to know who I was and that's why we're all here together tonight. Yes. Um but I, I have to say guys that I've been listening to the audio version of the memoirs of Billy Shears. Yes. And I've got the free uh audible from Amazon trial. This book is a marathon. It's very intricate. Yes, it is. Very it's, much so. it's it's at least twenty five hours. It's a very complex book, and if people believe or they don't believe, you have to give credit to whoever wrote it, ghost wrote it, if Paul McCartney, who we know is Paul McCartney, if it's pure fiction, if it's partially fiction, this thing is intricate. This well, thing I is will, well designed.
3: Is I will tell crazy. you, that's, that's where I'm torn, because you know how much I love that, 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 the Paul McCartney conspiracy, and I would have loved to have been part of that show, but obviously with my birthday, I'm booked. But I do want to throw um, the following show, on the 4th, I'll be hosting, and we're going to have uh, Ray Savino, who's a friend of the shows, and a couple of the cast, yep. uh, we might have a call-in or two from the cast of Ghost Hunters on A&E, and we're going to do a show discussing paranormal investigations, which, if Good. I'm correct, Angelo, is the first time in the show's history we're going to have back-to-back non-wrestling shows. So
0: Absolutely, and we're going to be doing a lot more of them, and I would love to be on that episode.
3: It should be it should be fun and uh I you know um Mikey I'm gonna go have have you do your stuff but for those out there obviously Wrestling with the Future we're on Facebook uh, we're on Twitter at Wrestling Future no G we also have the closed Facebook group Wrestling with the Future podcast we're on YouTube and I believe now you said Angelo we have an Instagram Wrestling Instagram. with the Future Instagram
0: at Wrestling with the Future.
3: And we are—we continue to expand the brand. We're 100 over 130 stations now on podcasts, including four international. Yep. So we are—we continue to expand the brand. And like Mikey said, they've got to raise that profile, and we continue to do so. Oh, so absolutely! Every to, day,
0: every week, every look week.
3: forward to the future.
0: Absolutely, and we—we uh, we also have a very, very special special going on. Three large T-shirts for 20 bucks. Look at the shirt. Check this out. You're right. Oh, this shirt. Look at that shirt. It's a nice shirt. That's nice. That's a sweet-looking shirt.
2: Absolutely. Hey, so For everyone that's listening, you can buy those three shirts as a birthday gift to Angelo because his birthday is July 10th, which was also the Grand American Bash Lex Luger versus Ric Flair yep. in Baltimore that a young Mike Messier attended as, as an infant. <laughs> And uh, Barry Windham versus Dusty Rhodes. So, so Angelo, did you watch that pay-per-view on your birthday back in 1988 when you were five or six years old?
0: When I was five or six years old? God bless you. No, I watched it live. I was there.
2: Well, I was in the attendance for that, too. So we were both at the same place at the same time, buddy. Yeah, but
0: I was behind the curtain when you were out in the audience. That's true. You probably paid to get
2: in. I didn't have to. Oh, gee whiz.
3: <laughs> Angela snuck in the back.
2: Well, you'll have oh, to tell that everybody. story. You'll have to, you'll have to tell that story on a future episode because I'm I'm I'm, I'm doing a series of Great American Bash memories that started with the Sting Flair one, but yes. as we get to the midnight hour tonight, it is the anniversary of Flair and Luger, and then uh, the July 23rd is the anniversary of uh, Flair vs. Funk '89 Bash. Well,
0: we can discuss it at that time. Um, But right now, we've got to say goodnight to everybody because we're already pushing two hours and ten minutes. Mm. So, everyone, thank you for Mike the Movie Maker. Marvelous Mike the Movie Maker, Messier. MikeMessier.com. If his name was a website, it would be MikeMessier.com. For Dan, the man Sebastiano, the smartest guy in the room, the happy haberdasher. I am Psychic Medium Angelo. Enjoy. Happy wrestling, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.